Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Welcome back to Podside Picnic. Uh, as usual, this is Pete, and I am very happy to be talking to Jim today. Uh, if you're looking at him on your bookshelf, he'd be James Allen Gardner, and he's written a number of things. He's probably best known for the League of People series, and uh, he's agreed to come and talk to us about his work today. Uh, thanks for coming on the show, Jim. I'm happy to be here, Pete. Great. Well, and as you pointed out, it's not like anybody has any chances to go anywhere. Right. <laughs> I, I, I'm listening to a lot of podcasts these days. <laughs> so um, I actually think I'm one of the lucky people who started reading your work as it was getting published. But uh-huh. like when I first started reading your work, I started with the League of People's Universe. And uh, I well, I loved it. But I at first I thought, well... This is sort of an homage to Star Trek. And then as more books came out, I'm like, well, no, it's it's a lot more critical than that. And then I was like, well, no, it's his own space opera. And then I'm like, well, it's actually his exploration of heroic narratives. And so I guess my question is, did I go on a long journey of change there or did you? Could you talk about what you were doing with this? The, the first uh, book is very clearly uh, inspired by Star Trek. The um, uh, lead character is based on the red shirts. I'd like to say, by the way, that uh, my book came out before John Scalzi's red shirts. Um, and um, it started, uh, of course, we all know about red shirts in Star Trek, the people who... Uh, get killed early on uh, so that we know that the bad guys are bad, but they aren't actually uh, killing the stars. It's just some guy who's there who uh, dies. And, of course, that's we all laugh at that, and uh, lots of people have made fun of it in various ways. But one night I was just, you know, jazzing around and improvising at the typewriter at that time, a real honest-to-goodness typewriter, and uh, the voice of a red shirt uh, came to me. Yeah, yeah, you think it's funny. Do you know why I'm in this situation? And um, the first 10 pages of Expendable kind of blatted straight out uh um, not even thinking about it. And I looked at it and said, oh my God, that's the start of a novel. And that's pretty much exactly how Expendable started. Uh, it was this wonderful voice of Festina Ramos saying, yeah, you think I'm a joke, but I'm not. And then I had to figure out what the rest of the book was about, and that took ages. Right. 
That's that's really interesting because I mean I thinking back in Expendables, Festina really was like the 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 winds of fate were were pushing her in directions and she just sort of had to adapt. But like by the last books, she was like uh, she wasn't a red shirt anymore. She was she was one of the steely jawed heroes. Yes. So one of the things that one of the ways I start writing books is I find a voice. And uh, one of the things about the um, uh, League of Peoples series, most of the books, well, all of the books are first person. And uh, each one is about a different person going through things. At the same time, I wanted some continuity between the books. So um, Festina shows up in most of the books, not all of them, as a troubleshooter. So the books are not, she is part of the books, but the books are actually the story of some other character going through a thing. Um, I think a um, novel should be about a character going through some huge incident in their life. And, and none of us goes through a ton of things. We each have kind of pivotal changes in our life, maybe three or four uh, as uh, over the course of a lifetime, but we don't have huge changes. So I didn't want to, you know, Festina goes through one huge change. Oh, and uh, two months later, she goes through another. And three months later, she goes through. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, so I wanted to have uh, different people as the core changer, but Festina in the background to be part of the action too. That makes a ton of sense. And speaking to what you said there, the idea of like the 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 book having those life events, you you seem to pair those. I mean, I, I noticed it in uh, in the the. The Explosions book, the first Dark versus the Spark book yep. as well. It's it's on the one hand, the the world is crashing and this person is the fulcrum on which that's being prevented. And their entire life, like they're they're undergoing a major life change, almost becoming someone else. And like I can't say I've never seen that in other books, but you like you do it so consistently it's it's it really like is that is that part of who you are or deliberate choice i i think uh my idea of books is that you have uh external events and internal events going on simultaneously and uh ideally um the uh internal changes keep pace to some extent with the ratcheting up of external tensions. And it's the, partly the external tensions that force the internal changes. If someone's just not, if someone is living day to day and doesn't have a lot of external pressure, uh, they change a lot more slowly. Uh, they, well, I mean, we all change, but they change a lot more slowly than if there's something else that's uh, forcing them to change right now. You have to go through something. You have to learn th something. You have to 
get over some baggage or else you're not going to be able to do what you need to do. Um, and I don't think I'm unique in that. There are a lot of books where uh, the external pressures lead to internal changes. Um, many writing books talk about that. That makes sense. Absolutely. So um, I want to talk about Commitment Hour. And, and when I do, I'm going to embarrass myself a little bit. Because when I, when I first started reading your books, I was like, wow, like, what a, what a progressive writer. I mean, like, you have these strong female characters and, like, you know, talk about consistently passing the Bechdel test and all of that stuff. And I just, like, I really was embracing your work. And then I read Commitment like, I'm not comfortable like this, this. This makes me nervous. And I had to go back to that book years later to get comfortable because it, it like uh, for the for the folks at home who haven't read it, uh, one, read it. And two, without spoiling anything, it's an exploration of like gender and identity. And um, I'm not asking you to get personal, Jim, but like if. Like you were coming to terms with another person's changing identity. Like, is that is that the source of this book? Yeah, um, uh, it Commitment Hour is uh, probably the book that I would like to rewrite if I had a chance. Um, I I think uh, so. One of the problems with with Commitment Hour is that the hero is an asshole um, and or at least the hero is an asshole half the time. Um, yeah. I'll give, I'll give away spoilers. Um, <laughs> Commitment Hour takes place in a, a, a town in the future. Things have happened, which I won't explain. But in this uh, small, isolated village, um, the people, children, are picked up by the quote-unquote gods uh, every year and brought back, and they're the opposite gender. So if you were born a boy, um, you get taken away at the age of one or thereabouts, and you're brought back a girl. And uh, everybody in the village alternates genders until um, the time of commitment which is when they're 18, and then they have to choose permanently whether they're going to be male or female. Um, there is an alternative where they can choose to be hermaphroditic, but the culture has evolved in such a way that that's awful, that uh, people who are both are considered despicable, and the uh, protagonist of the book is a sexist bastard when he's male, but he has a sort of, occasionally his female side kicks in and takes over and she's less of a bastard, but both sides are kind of tunnel visioned. And it makes for a hard read because neither one of them is particularly likable. And the, um, uh, male version of the protagonist is really a scumbag in many ways. And uh, that's hard to deal with. I know a lot of readers had uh, uh, problems to deal with. And if I uh, 
wrote it again, I don't know what I'd do. I mean, the gender gender issues have changed so much. I wrote it in 1997, and that's yeah. more than 20 years ago. And so much has changed since then of what we're sensitive to and aware of and uh, what people can and can't say or should and shouldn't say. Um, and I'm okay with that. I mean, um, I've lived a long time and... Uh, when things started out, uh, the world was horribly misogynist, homophobic, uh, sure. uh, insensitive to everything. Um, and that's changed, uh, probably not far enough, but uh, um, heaven knows it's improved. You were going to say something, Pete. Oh, I, all I was going to say is like, well, I, I agree that like, the, this book didn't leap 50 years forward into enlightenment or anything, but <laughs> in terms of risk, I really do feel like I, I, I like I, I have, I have no idea how you came up with it in 1997, at least comparing it to like where I was at. Like I'm still embarrassed with my outlook at that time. And, and this seemed like a, like an honest attempt to grapple with some issues that everybody else was ignoring. Yeah, I, but it, it's interesting. Um, so one of the things about Commitment Hour was that it came out uh, as part of uh, Avon's new Eos line, Eos, the goddess of the dawn. And um, there were uh, books that came out as part of the Eos line, three uh, months in a row. One of them was Commitment Hour, where um, people alternate genders and have the choice of being hermaphroditic. Uh, another one, um, oh, I, uh, it was by Carolyn Ives Gilman, and I think it's something like More Than Human or All Too Human. Um, uh, and in that, the uh, protagonist was true neutral, uh, just true neuter, so uh, had no gender at all. And uh, the third book was one uh, by Severna Park, and I forget what it was called, too, uh, but it had three genders, um, three separate genders, all of whom had to participate in order to uh, reproduce. So uh, the same book line, uh, three months uh, in a row, examined alternate uh, gender associations. So um, it was in the air. It just uh, uh, took a while to uh, branch out and, uh, well, uh, uh, get embraced by LGBTQ, which at that point was LG, uh, that anyone was right. aware. <laughs> Obviously, uh, uh, trans people and queer people and bi people and all the rest of it, asexuals, they were all part of the culture, but they were just um, invisible to the mainstream. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's sort of amazing to look at now and look at then. And it, it's almost like there was a colored filter over my mm -hmm. eyes that blocked most of that out. Like, 
I'm sure I had regular interactions with people who were not particularly hiding anything. And I had no idea because I just didn't have any tools. Yep. Um, a friend of mine uh, became a trans woman and I didn't have, a, this was in the eighties uh, and I lost touch with her before she transitioned. Uh, and and just I uh, feel so bad about how uh, much I teased her uh, when I found out and uh, just what a horrible uh, uh, example I was <laughs> at the time. I yeah, I, I remember um meeting somebody at a bar who was trans and having a very interesting and like just fulfilling talk with them. And later when I got back to my friends for years, I turned it into a joke and mm -hmm. I am, I am incredibly ashamed by that, but I, I, I don't think I'm alone either. I think, I think there were a lot of people making choices like that. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, uh, the, <laughs> It was uh, the uh, trans people themselves turned it into a joke because that was how they managed to survive. Yeah. Uh, in the 70s and 80s. Um, uh, the movie Outrageous is an example. Um, and uh, uh, it's sad that they had to do it. And uh, thank heavens we're, our eyes are a little bit more open. But. As we all know, things are far, far, far from uh, perfect. Yeah. Well, and it makes me wonder what I don't see right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, this is a question that comes up in uh, uh, at science fiction cons a lot. Um, so what are we going to be kicking ourselves about in 10 years? Oh. <laughs> and, uh I, I've never seen anyone uh, get it right. You know, 10 years ago, did anyone say anything about trans people? Uh, I guess 10 years ago, LGBTQ was uh, 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 becoming more apparent. Um, but, for example, uh, asexuals were nowhere on the radar at that point. Um, uh, no, Nowhere on my radar, yeah. anyway. Well, that, that's where I am, too. Uh or was uh, I have a I, I have a question that I didn't clear with you, so I'm, I'm going to take her here. Um, often, when I talk to authors, it's very easy for me to, for lack of a better word, pigeonhole them, where I can say <laughs> you are a Zelaznik person, or you read a lot of Le Guin, and mm -hmm. I can't pigeonhole. Like I'm having a lot of trouble trying to figure out where your science genre roots are or even if you have them like are there writers that you look to as uh as guideposts uh zelazny's in there for sure um back in the old days uh terry pratchett uh recently uh Le Guin for sure um there's a British writer called, named John Collier who's um, um, uh, not well known these days. He wrote a lot in the 40s and 50s, and a number of his stories turned into uh, Twilight Zone uh, 
episodes uh, in Rod Serling's original Twilight Zone. Uh, he was a fun fantasy science fiction writer um, who did a lot of quirky short stories. And I think that uh, he was um, hugely influential on me. Uh, I'll tell you, um, I, I lived in a small town and one day my great uncle said, why don't we go into uh, the big city, which was Toronto at that point, and go to a real live bookstore and he was going to buy me some books. And the books I bought um, were John Col was a John Collier collection, a Theodore Sturgeon collection, and uh, the first Dangerous Visions. And uh, that was really my first set of uh, science fiction fantasy books beyond the children's department in a library. And uh, all three of those had a huge effect on me at the time. It's, that always interests me because like I, on... On some level, when I talk to people who are real book, want of a better choice, especially writers, there's, there's often a moment where they just sort of reach up to the shelf and grab something. And you always mm -hmm. wonder how it could have been different. Like, what if what if Lovecraft had been there? What if uh, Louis Lamour yeah. had been there? It could go anywhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, the, lots of writers I fell in love with later, uh, Michael Moorcock, uh, had already brought stuff out, and of course Lovecraft. Uh, but I came to them late. Uh, Lovecraft through the Call of Cthulhu game. Oh, sure. Um, and I, I did a lot of role playing, which also has uh, a, a big effect. You can see that in the latest books, the uh, all those explosions and uh, uh, the the Dark versus Spark books. Um, but yeah. Um, I think Dangerous Visions was a really important one. Um, it's probably dated very badly. I haven't read it in years. Um, and of course, uh, uh, Harlan Ellison, who was the editor, is uh, super problematic these days. But um, one thing the book did uh, was, uh, so there's the story uh, it was a collection of stor short stories, and Ellison went around to uh, his friends and other up-and-coming things and said, give me the stories that are so cutting-edge, no one else will publish them, and I will. Oh. So, it, so, yeah. So, first of all, they were uh, really cutting-edge stories at the time that the, the uh, anthology came out. Uh, 70s, I think, maybe earlier, late 60s. And, um, but in addition to that, every uh, story had a preface by Ellison saying um, why I think this author is good and how I know them. And uh, just talking about how authors get together and talk and uh, think about their stories. And then after each story, there was the author, an, uh, an afterward from the author saying how I wrote this story and what I think about it. So um, 
it was this amazing introduction, not just to uh, a bunch of stories that were unlike anything else that was being published then, but, um, hey, these authors are people, and uh, this is what kind of a person I think they are. And afterwards, the author saying why I wrote this particular story the way I did. Um, amazing introduction to writing. That's very cool. I, I, I have somewhere in this room, I have uh, like an Again Dangerous Vision hardbound. And mm-hmm. it, it kind of makes me want to go back and look because I remember my relationship with those is I would read the story and then I'd get to exposition by the author and I'd go, mm, and I'd page through. And I guess I was looking for something different, and I, I kind of feel like I missed out now. That's a, that's, that's such a great way to use it. Yeah, yeah. It, it I mean, uh, perhaps uh, some of the uh, afterwards weren't uh, uh, brilliant, but I remember uh, Le Guin's, uh, she had a, a reasonably long uh, novella, and I, I think it was a novella, um, and just talking about how she went about constructing the story and making the characters and uh, um, just uh, eye-opening and and multiply that by 30. Uh, some of them, like old school writers who, you know, it's all about oh, sure. <laughs> and some of them very new uh, uh, writers, you know, um, uh, Samuel R. Delaney had a story in there, and I had no idea what the heck it meant. Uh, but I bet I should try reading that one again. Uh, I'd probably understand it better than I did when I was like twelve or whenever I read. Yeah, like I, I always found that with with Dahlgren. Like people ask me if it's a good book, and mm-hmm. I always say yes, it's superb. But what I don't tell them is like I will read fifty pages. And then I'll skip 15 that I don't like, and then I'll read another 50. You know, um, I loved Dahlgren when I read it, and I didn't understand a whole lot about it. But one of the local libraries had a Grove Press edition, and Grove Press did hardcovers. Maybe they're still around, although I doubt it. Um, But in addition to hardcovers, they... Uh, hired someone really good to do a serious uh, introduction to the book. And I forget who did the Dahlgren one. Um, uh, oh, bad. But, <laughs> I do uh, this all the time. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it just really opened my eyes to the book. So this introduction was something like 50 pages uh, talking about uh, Delaney and uh, Delaney's way of writing, but also doing a pretty elaborate uh, analysis of the book. And uh, uh, I really loved it um, and uh, really made me see Dahlgren a whole different way. Yeah. Yeah, that's... I, I love it. I so mm-hmm. something tickling in the back of my head. Do you still live around Toronto? Yes, I live about an hour west okay. of Toronto. Uh, the reason I ask is that my co-host and I we're we're kind of planning to go up there, like in late mm-hmm. summer, 
And I was wondering if there's any chance we could like meet you at Stormcrow Manor, buy you a few drinks or some coffee and talk. Sure. Okay. Sounds great. awesome. Yay. All right. Uh, you have my email and I'm always happy for an excuse to, uh, uh, go into Toronto. There's some good bookstores there, obviously, and people I know. So. I'm I'm living in Las Vegas now, and like I I love this mm-hmm. town, but there's like one good bookstore, and it's about to close mm-hmm. because like I'm the only patron. It's really disturbing. Uh, yeah. Um, well, Toronto has uh, back of Phoenix, and uh, of course, in these days of COVID nineteen, I'm sure they're struggling as much as anyone. Uh, and who knows which bookstores will survive or not, but they're quite close to the University of Toronto, and I think they get a lot of uh, uh, business from students who kind of go across the street. Uh, Being close to a a big university has to be a plus for uh, uh, science fiction fantasy. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. That's... So um, let's let's talk a little bit about the dark versus the spark. Uh, I, I I wasn't mm-hmm. going to ask about this, but but you brought it up. Um, it's it does have role playing game characteristics. Like, are there specific yep. games that you sort of, like? I always thought Torg. I don't know if you played that one. Uh, I haven't, uh, but but uh, I I've read the book. Um. Uh, so when I started, uh, I, I played a bit of D&D uh, like anybody else, uh, but uh, our group quickly shifted to Champions, which is a superhero uh, campaign. And we played uh, Champions off and on for uh, ages. Um, I've always loved superheroes. Um, that same uh, great uncle who took me to Toronto to buy books also took me to a, a smaller, uh, took me from my small town to a small-ish city every week to buy comic books. And uh, I am proud to say I bought the first eight Avengers uh, off the spinner racks. Um, so I actually owned... Uh, original copies of those until, of course, my mother threw them out like everybody's oh, mother does. I was so scared <laughs> where the story was going. And by the way, I'm huge yeah. fan, too. Like, I, I remember this involved, like, uh, 20-night thing we did with, with our GM with, dealing with Foxbat, I think. Sort of the evil Batman. Yeah. yeah, it's it's just, it's such a fun world and set of rules. Yeah. So so uh, I played Champions Forever. I also played uh, Vampire the Masquerade. And you can see uh, that uh, Vampire is uh, in there a lot. Um, I, I had to uh, work hard not to steal from uh, any particular source too thoroughly. Um, sure. Anyone who knows. Anyone who knows Vampire can see the influence. Um, I actually have done a little bit of writing for Onyx Path, which now uh, uh, has license to some of the old White Wolf uh, games. So I've written um, uh, some stuff for uh, their Cyan uh, line, where the uh, players play uh, 
children of the gods, basically. Dad was Zeus and mom was a mortal or something like that. It's a fun that game. That sounds pretty cool. Like, I, what I remember in White Wolf is the option you had to be a good guy was like a mummy or something. So I'm, I'm glad there are other <laughs> options now. Yeah, they're, they're, I really like uh, Onyx Paths. Uh, uh, well, I like the White Wolf uh, lines, and they've, Onyx Path has done some interesting things with them. Uh, Cyan is one of Onyx Path's own games, and um, uh, I, I think that it's a good system. Uh, if people have never played Onyx Path stuff, have a look at it. Awesome. So in the dark versus spark, I, I mean, it really does feel like a new direction in your writing. Uh, like, absolutely good, good. Okay, that means I'm not going crazy. <laughs> um, <laughs> but like, when, when you look at the League of People stuff, like, there is some cultural criticism. I mean, like, you're not a mm. uh, 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 sun never sets on the British Empire guy, you know? Right, right. But um, this feels more like. I don't know, inspired by Occupy Wall Street, something like that. There's a real focus on the haves and haves nots and the, the essential injustice on that. Uh, so, like, what brought you in that direction? And do you have any thoughts on where it's going that wouldn't spoil anything? Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, Occupy uh, had uh, an influence on it. Um, uh, again, just to set, set it up, uh, for people who uh, uh, may not know the books. Um, in 1980s, and it's no, uh, 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 no accident that it's during the Reagan years, um, the vampires, werewolves, and demons come out of the closet and say, why have we been hiding? We have a saleable asset here. Uh, and they offer to make anyone... Uh, who is interested, uh, vampire, werewolf, demon, um, for 10 million bucks. And uh, while it's thought to be a hoax for a while, um, people sign up and suddenly the 1%, uh, all the rich and famous are vampires or werewolves. They have supernatural powers and uh, the world is, you know, they have even more power in the dark spark world than they have in our own, which is saying something. Uh, but uh, as a compensation, and there's actually a reason for this, I, I get around to explaining it in book three, um, superheroes start showing up in the year 2000. And these are the 99% people. Superheroes are just people who are stupid enough to fall in the vat of, of weird chemicals or touch the glowing meteor or uh, uh, be born with uh, a weird gene. Um, so the setup is that the rich and powerful are all darklings, vampires, werewolves, etc. And the 99% are protected by superheroes. Um, and that's such a political setup, uh, um, and deliberately so, um, so I can talk about, uh, uh, political things. It's just so nice to be writing things that take place in the present day. As you said, there was some, uh, political stuff in the League of Peoples, 
uh, books, but they were all 400 years in the future. So um, there are reflections, but uh, I can't get down and dirty with uh, reality the way that I can uh, in the Dark Spark stuff. Yeah, that that makes a ton of sense. I, I mean, especially, I, I mean, I, I don't I don't know if you feel that this way, but like my sense of urgency is heightened. Like I had, I had some things yeah. I was unhappy with in the nineties, but I'm sort of at the, well, um, I would like human can't kind of survive. I would like everyone to have enough food. And like, I, I didn't feel like those stakes were there in the same way a decade or two decades ago. You're right. And uh, uh, I mean, one of the things we hope uh, if the uh, COVID-19, if anything good can come from it, is that it's a kick in the head of, of society. And uh, maybe, you know, fingers crossed, uh, humanity will come out of this more humane uh, and maybe uh, more humane uh, political and economic systems will uh, uh be an outcome we can hope and of course we have uh uh serious stuff hanging over our head climate change uh being huge but uh (laughs) pandemics maybe too um so many things that uh should be addressed inequality um and you know i hope it's going to happen if it doesn't we're in deep trouble yeah I, uh, I, I, I cannot argue with you. And I, I, I wish I, I wish I knew what was going to happen next. I guess it's better that I don't, I mean, it, it, it parts more urgency, but, uh, well, I, mm-hmm. I think I've made it clear that I'm a huge fan. Um, it, oh, yeah, absolutely. I, if you, uh, if, if somebody is listening to this and they haven't checked out your work before, where would you want them to start? Um, the starting place for the League of Peoples is definitely expendable. That's the uh, first book in the series, and it introduces Festina. I think it's also uh, Festina has a really powerful voice, um, and uh, she is really uh, powerful on the page. Uh, the first few pages of Expendable still give me a chill when I read it. Um, the other books, um, uh, all those, the, the two Dark versus Spark books, um, read them in order. The first one is All Those Explosions Were Someone Else's Fault, and the second one is uh, They Promised Me the Gun Wasn't Loaded. Um, and uh, they're fun. Um, and I think it's important to read those uh, in order. Um, the the setup for the all those explosions is uh, for university students who suddenly get superpowers. Um, all those explosions takes place in uh, about six hours uh, following uh, the time they get their superpowers, um, and. Uh, I think it's the book that takes the least amount of time of anything I've written. I, I tend to do minute by minute things, but all those explosions uh, really is over and done with in six or seven hours. Um, and 
then the second book uh, features a different one of the students who uh, uh, got powers, and it takes place uh, about a week later. The third book takes place uh, about three weeks after that, and the fourth book will take place about a month after that. And and that's my goal, to look at each one of these each one of the four students who gets superpowers. And just like I was talking about earlier in the podcast, um, the first person who gets uh, superpowers has a lot of baggage that hits right away. And uh, that person has to um, really get their act in gear to uh, cope with not just the... uh, external situation where things are going all to hell, but a lot of baggage that's been sitting around uh, stewing in their life for a long time. Uh, The second book is a different character after things have sunk in suddenly, well, not suddenly, but through a series of things having to uh, reassess her life and pull out of a nosedive that she was in. Uh, The third book uh, is, again, someone, um, the powers finally catch up with them and things in the background force her to uh, assess her life, make some changes. Is the third book published yet? No, no, it's not. I've written about a third of it. Um, And uh, uh, it will get published sooner or later. Um, I've also been writing a haunted house book, which is nothing like anything I've uh, written before. But um, haunted house books, uh, again, are a bit um, political. Um, What scares us now? I read a lot of um, uh, haunted house books uh, over the years. And it's interesting to see how they change with time. It's always what scares us now? What scared, well, Haunting of Hill House, what scared people in 1959? Uh, being different, being atypical uh, scared them and maybe maybe going mad, but uh, being different was scary in those days. Um, as time went on, different things scared people. So I think haunted house books are very much of their time. What is the scariest thing that we can imagine now? And that's what happens to you in a haunted house. Well, Jim, when that comes out, I would definitely like to email you to talk to you about it on the air, because that sounds fascinating. And it's very much in line with the sort of things we talk about here, like authors playing with genre and the vague line (laughs) between all the different subgenres and that stuff. It's perfect. There was a time in the 70s when haunted house books were about male impotence. <laughs> um, that there were, it, it really is bizarre that uh, there were several haunted house books written about the same time that were all about men who couldn't satisfy their wives. And uh, this was, of course, a period when the feminist movement was becoming prominent and women who... Uh, didn't need their husbands or weren't being satisfied by their husbands in the uh, way that 
happened in the 50s and 60s was clearly on the mind of a number of male authors. So an interesting uh, uh, social topic. Oh, incredible. Um, I'm trying to remember. There is an author. He did a whole bunch of books called like uh, Vom Fear. And what, what they are, they, they are about a uh, Harry Keough, the necroscope, who's fighting vampires. Brian, yes, and it's all about the Cold War and how horrible Russians are. Like, I just imagine him like facing the East and shaking his fist every day before he, you know, goes to work. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's so easy to see that once the uh, uh, period is over. Uh, um, so Richard Matheson's Hell House is one of these ones with male impotence, and when I read it at the time, it, it didn't you know, stand out at all. But when I uh, read it later on, or in the past, uh, like maybe four years ago, when I was preparing for this haunted house book, I was just <laughs> glaring the cult uh, uh, fears that were sitting there That's all along. Wild, yeah. That, I I haven't read mm -hmm. uh, Matheson's one. I'll have to pick that up. We 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 talked about I Am Legend in an earlier episode, and that. That's just wonderful mm -hmm. to have somebody talented do something that weird, you know? Yeah, it's it's called Hell House, and it's a pretty good uh, 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 haunted house book. Um, it's more decadent than uh, uh, you might think. Um, and uh, the strange thing is I uh, came to Hell House because uh, Marvel Comics did... A, a, an amazingly blatant ripoff of it uh, in a comic book called Werewolf by Night. Uh, I don't know how they got away with it without uh, being <laughs> sued because it it's you know step by step Hell House is it's uh, <laughs> it's really That's quite wild. Remarkable. Wow. So. Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe when your book is out, we could do a double feature, talk about both things. That's really cool. I'd be happy to do so. So, uh, Jim, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, honestly, uh, we're going to put this out tomorrow. So I know you're on Twitter. We'll send you a link. Great. Thanks very much, Pete. It's been a lot of Absolutely. fun talking to you. <laughs>